0: This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 299, Why the FDIC is Not
1: Your Superhero. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner, Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future.
0: Wait a minute, you didn't know we had a YouTube channel? That's right, we put content that we don't put anywhere else on YouTube, and you need to see it to believe it. So be sure to follow, like, and subscribe our channel so you won't miss a thing. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode. Hey, look in the sky! It's a bird, it's a plane, it's the FDIC? That's right, the financial defender in a cape. Get it? In a cape. With its trusty shield of protection, the FDIC swoops in to safeguard your deposits and keep your money safe from the perils of financial uncertainty. This superhero operates behind the scenes, working tirelessly to ensure that your hard-earned cash is shielded from the risks of bank failures and other supervillains. Just like a superhero with superpowers, the FDIC has the ability to provide guarantees and safeguards to the depositors, you. Meet everybody who needs and relies on this great institution, offering peace of mind and financial security in times of turmoil. With its unwavering commitment to the public, the FDIC stands as a bulwark against the forces of financial instability, ensuring that your deposits are protected up to a certain limit and coming to the rescue if your bank encounters difficulties. It's a financial guardian, always watching out for your best interest and fighting to keep your money safe and sound. So, rest easy knowing that the FDIC is on the scene, ready to defend your deposits and keep your finances sure. With its powers of protection, the FDIC is a true superhero in the world of banking, working tirelessly to keep your money safe and sound, come what may. But, and this is a big but, as you start to look closer at this amazing superhero, you begin to notice that it's breaking a sweat. In fact, Super FDIC here appears to be struggling mightily. Despite its flashy superhero appearance, the FDIC is reserving only a mere 1% of all of our insured's deposits that it's claiming to protect. This means that if there was a sudden wave of bank failures or financial crisis, the FDIC, its resources could be stretched thin, leaving it ill-equipped to fully fulfill the mission of safeguarding all of our deposits. So, kind of like a superhero without enough power, the FDIC's weakness lies in its limited reserves. It's the kryptonite of the super FDIC. In times of financial stress, it actually might not have enough resources to even fully compensate all of us for our losses. And this could pose a big risk. The financial instability could topple down nationwide and lose the confidence of its depositors. While FDIC is designed to be a safety net for depositors, its thin reserves could potentially leave it exposed and unable, as we've seen lately, to effectively protect depositors' funds in the face of a severe financial shock. It's like a superhero with a chink in its armor, making it vulnerable to threats, challenges, and other superhero villains. Still feeling safe? Is this superhero up to the challenge of the current economic climate? Well, much like Lois Lane, one day you're going about your business, everything is working out smoothly, and then, in a blink of an eye, you're captured by the recession reaper and the market mauler, two dynamic duo supervillains. Would you count on the FDIC to swoop in and save you? This happened, guys. This happened just earlier this year. As confidence in the banks began to waver, uncertainties loomed overhead. In fact, in March 2023, Silicon Valley Bank met its end due to a bank run. The increase in interest rates caused a sharp decline in the value of those assets, which were mainly long-term treasury bonds, which led to the bank's insolvency. So what happened next is really important, so pay close attention. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was called to action to salvage Silicon Valley Bank's assets. The government was using some, let's say, tricky wordplay, claiming that no taxpayer funds were going to be used to make the depositors whole and that it was not technically a bailout. These were, I'd say, grossly fallacious claims to say it mildly. The Silicon Valley Bank will be non-existent once the depositors are reimbursed, so it doesn't qualify as a bailout. That is true. And nearly all depositors at that bank were holding well over the $250,000 limit And yet, all of them have been made whole. But where did they get that money? Where did they get that money to bail out depositors? Well, ever notice the name, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation? That's right. Insurance is right there in the name. So let's talk about the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. See, here's how it works. Banks pay a premium to have FDIC insurance, which reduces the yield, of course, when they've got a cost. It reduces the yield they can offer you and me, our depositors. So before the Silicon Valley bank fiasco, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation had $124.5 billion of assets and had received about $100 billion line of credit from the U.S. Treasury. Now wait a minute, who is the U.S. Treasury? Oh yeah, you and me. But now, all of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation assets will be used to cover Silicon Valley Bank's depositors. One bank, one bank will consume the entire insurance deposit that was supposed to cover all the banks. Take a moment to think about that for a minute. At least 200 other banks are in Silicon Valley Bank's position right now. So first, shouldn't the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation increase the premiums dramatically to rebuild its account value? It's it's empty right now. If they do that, won't that significantly decrease the yields it's going to offer you and me uh, in cash deposits and CDs and money market accounts and more? Remember, the account, the FDIC-insured account, has been wiped out completely. Second, how many banks, how many more banks have to fail before depositors with balances over $250,000 are not made whole like they were with Silicon Valley? Where will the government get the money to keep reimbursing all these depositors? Is there any end in sight? Who's going to decide? Who gets the cutoff? Who gets bailed out? Who doesn't? By entrusting the government with our, in our banking, aren't customers putting their livelihoods on the line when the government eventually decides not to cover bank balances and declare the FDIC bankrupt? Wow, what a day that will be. In fact, as interest rates have begun to come up and the value of the bonds that banks are holding are continuing to deteriorate. This puts surplus positions in real danger. So isn't this a classic example of why fractionalized banking and investing seems to cause significant worries, destabilizing our economy? Fractionalized banking needs to be something everyone knows and understands, but it's rarely understood. So an understanding of fractional banking reveals that we are just at the beginning of a tumultuous era of volatility for our world, our country, Our banks. So finally, lastly, before I dive into more content here, we are already anticipating a credit crunch even before the Federal Reserve met in March. Banks in particular, smaller banks, specifically in regional ones, were already trying to conserve cash as bank depositors were growing increasingly concerned about how much of their funds would be protected by the FDIC, again, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Lenders in the United States have already lost over $500 billion since the Silicon Valley bank collapse earlier in March. Customers are now realigning their funds to safer buckets such as money market accounts. Larger banks are usually the winners here like J.P. Morgan Chase. The Federal Reserve provided hundreds of billions of dollars in liquidity to prevent other banks from experiencing what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. But this may not even be enough hundreds of billions of dollars and it's not even enough they're raising interest rates at the Federal Reserve while they're simultaneously flooding banks with cash it's sort of like hitting the brakes and the gas at the exact same time so recommendations have been made to have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation guarantee all U.S. bank deposits let that sink in for a minute this is massive a massive request But it may not even halt the transfer of deposits from smaller to larger banks, even with that guarantee. So where will the government get the funds for that massive guarantee? The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has just 1.24% of the required funds needed to insure the $22 trillion of all of our bank accounts. Okay, so just 1.2%. Think of your bank balance today. What if you only got 1% of your money back in the event of your bank's collapse? How would your financial life change as a result? What would you have to do or sacrifice to make it through such a tough economic circumstance like that? So let's dive a little deeper. Are our banks really as powerful as they appear? The bank lobby sort of stands in my mind as this grand, imposing space, exuding this air of sophistication, opulence. The high ceilings adorned with ornate chandeliers, casting a warm, inviting glow, polished marble floors reflecting gleaming light. Underneath all that luxurious fabric and refined ambience, there's a dark underbelly. Our banking system is not transparent about the valuation of its assets. They often mark federally insured mortgages and long-term U.S. treasuries to book value. To book value instead of market value. Now, some folks are wondering what the heck is the difference between book value and market value. Let me see if I can walk through this with you. Think of book value as the value of a video game that you bought as a kid with your own money. I, as a kid, saved up $60 for a X-Men video game, and it was my prized possession. And it was a lot of money. $60 back in the 90s was a lot of money. Now, the book value is the price that I paid for that video game, $60. Market value, on the other hand, is like the price you could sell your video game for at a yard sale or on a website like eBay. So here's an example to help you kind of understand the difference. Let's say you bought that video game for $60, and that's the book value of that video game because it's the amount of money you spent. But if you want to sell your game to a friend or at a yard sale, you might only be able to get $30 or $25 for that. That's the market value. It's not as valuable to other people when it's been used or when there's something else out there that's better. Maybe X-Men 2 just came out. That $30, $25, $30 is the market value of the video game because it's the price you could sell it for in the market. Get it? So, this strategy of valuing banks at book value is doomed because they use a fractionalized methodology for their banking and investing. What is fractionalized methodology? Well, if you give a bank a million dollars in your deposits, well done, congratulations, they can typically loan out $10 million. But if 11% of those loans default, just 11% of their loans that they lent out on your million bucks, you think it's safe, you think it's there at the bank. But no, they've lent that money out and created 10 times as much money as a result. And if just 11% of those loans default at the bank, the bank becomes insolvent or goes into receivership. So here's kind of how this is done in contrast with insurance companies. It's true that insurance firms also use book value rather than market value to cite the same assets on their balance sheets. So why don't insurance companies get into trouble if they possess assets similar to banks? Insurance companies are much safer due to their reserve requirements. First of all, they're not allowed to do fractional reserve banking the way banks do. They have to keep 100%, in fact, more than 100%, closer to 114% of their deposits on the books at all times. Insurance companies are not permitted to be in aggressive investing strategies like subprime mortgages and other junk like that. So insurance companies and banks work differently when it comes to handling your money. While banks can use a system called fractional reserve banking, they only keep a fraction of the money that most people deposit and lend out the rest. Insurance companies, on the other hand, have to follow a different set of rules. Insurance companies collect a premium from policyholders and they invest that money to earn some income. But they also have to set aside a certain percentage of their assets as reserves to make sure they have enough money to cover potential death claims and that sort of thing. Something that banks just don't have to do. These reserve requirements are set by regulators and they are audited by third parties to make sure that that insurance company stays financially stable. So unlike banks, which can lend out 10x the money that people deposit, leaving only 10% in the vault, insurance companies have to be a lot more careful, literally 10 times more careful uh, with their reserves. In the United States, insurance companies are typically required to maintain reserves north of 100%, again, about 114% based on the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, the NAIC. That's their standard valuation law and valuation manual. Basically, it's what provides the guidelines for insurance companies to be an insurance company. If you don't have enough on reserve, you cannot be an insurance company operating in the United States. So they have to maintain this higher level of cash compared to banks. Why? Because they've got the big obligation of that death benefit coming down the pipe. They need to be prepared to pay out potential claims that may arise over a longer period of time than a typical bank account might be open. So it's a different perspective. It's a different asset class. It's very different from how banks operate, but it's all about making sure insurance companies can fulfill their promises to policyholders and remain financially secure, even in crazy times like we're living in right now. So does this give insurance companies an advantage and a tremendous edge over banks, given the current economic difficulties that we're all going through right now? Ask yourself, how many banks today would be insolvent if banks were marking their assets to market, again, like the $30 you know used video game, instead of book value? So because of this, do you know that over 2,000 banks right now are insolvent if they simply mark their assets to market? That's almost one in two banks are insolvent based on this metric. So let's say you're a small business that requires cash to operate. And I know it sounds crazy to the average listener. I know that you, you are not your average listener, but oftentimes people run a business with much more on their balance sheet than a quarter million dollars for their operating expenses, for their inventory, for payroll. So if we assume that you have more than the $250,000 in a small to medium-sized federal deposit-insured bank, and that bank went belly up, what do you think would happen to your cash? Let's say your balance in your checking account was $2 million. Then wouldn't it be true that $1,750,000 is not insured and thus could be lost forever? If there was a run on your bank, would the government really step in and cover all of your deposits? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen declined to provide coverage to all of us and declared that she and her team would determine the benefit of who's getting the big. Deposit or bailout on a bank by bank basis. Furthermore, hasn't she announced that she will give special consideration to the large systemically important banks? But what about the fate of those who are not systemically important and your money when the, your bank faces financial challenges? What's going to happen? We don't know exactly how things are going to play out in the future. And that's kind of the problem. But with everything going on, we certainly cannot call FDIC our superhero. The Federal Reserve is taking actions that could make banks less likely to lend money right now, guys. So at this time, smaller and regional banks are playing a big role in providing loans for business owners and individuals. In fact, medium-sized banks account for 43% of all commercial loans in the United States. Wow. Even though they only make up 25% of the total assets in the banking industry. So they're swinging above their weight. And similarly, smaller U.S. banks are responsible for almost 40% of consumer loans, your mortgages, your student loans, that sort of thing, even though they only represent 20% of the total assets in the banking industry. This is according to estimates from J.P. Morgan. Guys, this means that folks are more likely to get a loan from a smaller to medium-sized bank than a big one. The Federal Reserve's actions, what they've done here in the last few months, very well likely impact how much money banks are willing to lend out and that might mean all banks become more cautious with their lending. So this could affect borrowers, including businesses and individuals who find themselves in that spot where it's hard to get a loan, or they'll be faced with higher interest rates or stricter borrowing requirements. And the goal, of course, of these actions by the Fed is to manage the overall economy and ensure stability of the banking system. But it could have major implications for borrowing and lending activities, especially if you're a smaller or regional bank that Plays a significant role in providing loans to entrepreneurs and individuals trying to get a mortgage, right trying to get a credit card so it's no surprise here that banks are making it more and more challenging to qualify for loans. They're exerting their enormous pressure on individuals, business owners. This is just like Mark Twain said a hundred years ago. He says a banker is a fellow who will lend you his umbrella when the sun shines but wants it back as soon as it starts to rain well it's starting to rain. I'm feeling that drizzle. You know, banks were lending loosely just a year or two ago, and now that interest rates have begun to rise and folks are starting to find themselves having a harder time meeting their bills, that's exactly when banks are going to start drying up their loans. On the flip side, okay, so what can we do about this? On the flip side of things, owning cash value life insurance gives you terrific advantages to all this. First of all, it gives you access to money when it's most advantageous for you to use it okay so that's a big deal access to capital to purchase other businesses or land at a reduced price is the exact definition of financial success banks are going to impede access to capital during an economic recession such as the one we're maybe going through right now so this exerts immense pressure on people and families and businesses But having access to money to sustain living conditions and even investing in opportunities can be a huge relief. Talk about a peace of mind, an opportunity for all of us to take back control of the banking function in our own lives. So, we cannot control the Federal Reserve. We cannot control the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. We may not be able to control interest rates or the looming recession that people are concerned about. But the great news here is that one by one, family by family, business by business, we can all opt out of the banking system with its lack of prudence or reserve requirements. We can say sayonara to the FDIC and be our own banking superhero. When you use a bank-on-yourself type whole life policy, you have liquid access to cash within about a week or two. Typically, insurance companies either send the check to you or direct deposit it directly into your bank account. You might be wondering, well, hey, wait a minute. How would you use your policy loan if the banks are in a crisis? How are they going to get that money into a bank if all these banks are in a crisis? Great question, easy answer. As long as one bank is in the entire country is open for business, just one little bank, one corner bank, is open for business. You could simply open a checking account at that bank institution and then request the insurance company direct deposit funds from your life insurance policy into that bank to be used right away. Unlike banks, insurance companies cannot deny you access to the cash in your policy, nor can they deny you a policy loan should you want to take a policy loan. It's your money. It's written right into the contract. They cannot wiggle out of that or get negotiated out of that. When you have a bank-on-yourself designed whole-life policy, you can fight back against the financial supervillains regardless of the mere weak FDIC. You're not concerned about the status of reserve requirements of your local bank because you're not operating in their system. You don't need to worry about the health of the bank that you keep your money in. You might have a small checking account, certainly for bills and whatever, but running your business no longer means keeping unnecessarily large amounts of cash inside someone else's bank. Rather, you can become your own banker, in essence, and become your own source of financing, and be your own warehouse of wealth through your own whole life insurance policy. So we need to let the world know that this is an option for them. This is, what better time? I mean, this is exactly what this was designed for. What if only just 10% of America incorporated Bank on Yourself into their financial strategy? Would the FDIC even be necessary if that happened? Again, what about the Federal Reserve? Would they even be necessary anymore? Would Would anyone even care? About what the Fed was meeting about or talking about? If just 10% of America had a bank on yourself designed policy? What about keeping large bank balances at risky banks that require immediate government intervention whenever bonds invert? Imagine how much simpler our world would be, how much more peace would prevail. Wow. So it gives me goosebumps just thinking about that. So, guys, just some quick takeaways as we wrap up the episode. Number one, do not consider the FDIC your superhero. Even if they continue to bail people and their depositors out, uh, there's not money there. And it's really coming from taxpayer dollars. If you consider the treasury our dollars, that's exactly what it is. It's our tax dollars. In fact, the FDIC only keeps 1% of all deposits backed up and insured. I can hardly call that insurance. And certainly don't keep much money at the bank. That's my first takeaway. Second, consider a bank-on-yourself type policy as your warehouse for wealth reach out to us at notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com. Click on the button that says request a meeting, and we can talk about ways we can incorporate that strategy into your financial future. And the third and final takeaway, keep an eye to the sky. You might just see your fellow superheroes flying alongside you as you embark on this great financial revolution together. Thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money